Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, there's been a crime. Hi, it's Fisher, and we're talking criminal activity among our ancestors this week on the show. I'll be talking to a couple of podcasters who are using genealogy to put their story together about the wife of a mob boss, plus an ordinary person with an extraordinary find. A kidnapping took place in her family 120 years ago, and she now knows what happened to that baby. You're going to want to hear the story. And with Ask Us Anything, photo detective Maureen Taylor tells you how to find mugshots of your criminal ancestors. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a presentation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Oh, do we have a show for you today, because I think most of us will admit to the fact that we have criminal ancestors or criminal relatives, somebody in that family tree. And so we devote today's show to crime. And we're going to start out in about 10 minutes with Michael Seligman and Jessica Bendinger. They are the hosts of a podcast called Mob Queens that gets uh, into the story of the wife of Vito Genovese. Now, Vito was the model by which the Godfather was created. You remember Vito Corleone. So we're going to hear about what they've done using genealogical techniques to develop this story about Vito Genovese's wife, which is fascinating. And then later in the show, we're going to talk to Terry O'Connell. She's a Chicago woman, an ordinary person with an extraordinary find because she had a kidnapping in her family back in the 1890s. And her research, along with another cousin, has developed what happened to that infant throughout his life. Interesting stuff. And then at the back end of the show, it's another Ask Us Anything segment. We're going to have Maureen Taylor on, the photo detective, talking about mugshots. If you're looking for the mugshot of one of your criminal relatives or ancestors, she'll tell you how you might be able to find them and some of their records. Right now, let's check in with Boston and David Allen Lambert. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. David, do you have criminals in your background? Yeah, unfortunately, I can say that both my grandfathers were incarcerated. Uh, my dad's father more so than my mother's father, but <laughs> he was a bootlegger. A and, bootlegger uh, during the 30s? Uh, 20s and 30s, yeah. In fact, there's one court case where it says that Mr. Lambert is requested to give up the liquor business. Uh, <laughs> I had one that was in San Quentin. He wasn't uh, a direct ancestor, but he was a cousin, and I did find his mugshot. That was pretty cool. Really well, interesting You can have stuff. any of my black sheep ancestors I have. I'll be glad to lend them to you for any family <laughs> occasion. <laughs> All right. Let's get going. Well, I'll tell you, the first story we have for Family History on News, of course, brought to you by the news on ExtremeGenes.com, is an accidental find. 3,200-year-old late Bronze Age sword just found under some rocks. And the video is right there on the news story. This is on the island of Majorca. And this site had actually been excavated as early as the 1950s. And this just goes to show you, leave no stone unturned. Right. And this sword is 3,200 years old. It goes back to 1200 B.C. And the handle was actually sticking out of the rocks. And they were able to get this thing out. Not in great shape, but they consider it a monumental find. And it's really the only historical sword ever found on the site, so I guess better late than never. Yeah, right? 
Well, you know, and it's funny how things show up and they're returned to the appropriate place. So, of course, letters are something we cherish in genealogy. And, of course, if I mail you a letter, I'm mailing it from Massachusetts to your home, and it ends up there. Sometimes they return back. And I do that on eBay all the time. I'm always buying stuff from my hometown. But in the town of Avon, Connecticut, the librarians recently got a call from a gentleman in Ohio who had 60 letters. These are from the 18th and early 19th century from a Holly family that had a minister, and they moved out west. Well, now the letters have gone back home. Isn't that great? And they're going to be in the archives. So anybody from that family who ever wants to review them or obtain the content, I mean, this is going to tell a lot of stories. It is. And the other thing is it also gives you, besides your own family, the people that your family is associated with. So the associate connections are great because it can help tell the genealogy of someone who may have not even realized there was a letter about their ancestor. Wow. You know, when you look through libraries, you know, you think of holding a book that's been around for a long time. But in the 1890s, it was actually a book scare that people believed that you could catch tuberculosis, even cancer, from books that had been handled by somebody else. Yeah, in the libraries. This actually, this scare actually went on into the 19-teens. And uh, this story that's on ExtremeGenes.com talks about the origins of this scare. Yeah, there's a young gal by the name of Jessie Allen who died in 1895. She was a librarian in Omaha, Nebraska at the public library, and she died of tuberculosis, and they believed it stemmed from a book that she was handling. So people were not going to libraries because they felt they were going to get sick, and I would imagine that would probably put a real strain on the system for many places. I think so. In fact, I started at NEHGS in 1993 in our book loan circulating library. Just think, if it really had been a big thing, nearly 100 years later, I wouldn't have had a job. That's wouldn't right. be having this conversation with you right now. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Imagine that. you got to wonder, what from our era will people say 100 years from now? We'll look back on and go, really? They thought that? How about vaping? Vaping, yes. I think that's got to be the thing, because that's got to go. I mean, let's face it, they're killing people all over the place, and it's been presented to children as being 99% safer than cigarettes. The only thing that's safer than cigarettes is not doing anything at all. Yeah, right? (laughs) Breathe in the air that's around you. (laughs) Yeah, like it was meant to be. We have a new genealogical TV show on the horizon starring Daisy Fuentes, a new TV show called A New Leaf. This show premieres on NBC on October 5th, and we'll be giving the stories of average, everyday people learning to create a new leaf on their family tree and find great discoveries. How cool is that? Well, let's see how it is, right? Exactly. Well, you know, I love to give a blogger spotlight, but sometimes our bloggers don't have their own blogs. So if you go to familysearch.org slash blog, you can find guest bloggers such as the one recently by our good friend and genealogist Amy Tennant, where she wrote about the WPA interviews of former enslaved African Americans. During the WPA era, they did a lot of interviews of former enslaved individuals, and they've been transcribed and available, and Amy kind of gives you the details in regards to that. Awesome. Well, that's about all I have from Beantown this week. All right, David, thank you so much. And coming up next, we're going to talk to Michael Seligman and Jessica Bendinger. They are the hosts of the podcast called Mob Queens, talking about the wife of Vito Genovese of the Genovese crime family. You know, as we go deeper and deeper into the 21st century, there are so many more places for us to get great stories and great information and genealogical ties. And and one of them that's in development right now and doing really well is a new podcast called Mob Queen. 
Plains. And this kind of combines true crime and genealogy and history and biography. And I have the hosts on the show right now, Michael Seligman and Jessica Bending are on the line. How are you doing, guys? Nice to have you. Hi, Scott. <laughs> How did you guys get into this? I mean, what's your background? Are you genealogists? Are you historians? What, what's your story? We are amateur sleuths, and I have to give Michael credit because he worked on an infamous show called E! Mysteries and Scandals years ago, and so he would always tell me highlights from those shows that he worked on, and I was just completely dazzled and so curious about the trivia that he knew and the factoids that he had dug up. And so when we found this story, we were instantly kind of bonding over it and delighting in the prospect of becoming amateur PIs and figuring out this untold story of a totally true mob wife from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I spent my early days in TV as a research producer, and this was back before really the internet was as robust as it is now, and so I had to go to libraries, and I had to find old books, and I had to go into archives to find information that wasn't posted up online. Well, how 20th century of you is that? Wow. <laughs> it's very 1900s, yes. <laughs> so tell us about this background now. You've gotten into genealogy, as I understand it, Michael, and you're using this to put the story together. First of all, let's describe the podcast, because it's episodic, as I understand it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an unfolding story, like we're sort of building the plane as we're taking off here. We had a <laughs> sort of a framework of beats of the story that we knew, but really this podcast is about us filling in those blanks and going out and talking to people and finding out more and trying to connect all these dots to tell as big of a story as we possibly can and as true of a story. Now, how did you stumble on this story about this mob wife? Because that isn't just something people casually talk about. It's kind of a long story. You know, some friends of mine had discovered this archive of letters a few years ago in a friend's storage unit who had passed away, and he was in his 70s, and these letters had been written to him in the 1950s when he was a young man. And so we started looking into the letters, and it turns out that the letters all referred to a club where these performers performed for years and years. And in finding out who ran the club, we discovered it was the mob, oh, wow. and that the mafia controlled all of these nightclubs and employed all of these performers back in the day. So what gave you this interest that you wanted to fill in the stories, and who was the mob wife that you were so intrigued with? Well, the woman who ran the club was Anna Genovese, and so we thought, oh, interesting character. You mean from the, from the Genovese crime family? That's the one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And there had been, been some interesting tidbits about her on the Internet, but not a full buffet. And we just started digging and digging, and we found, oh, my goodness, she has quite an original story. And it's the kind of story that's been left out of the history books. Let's put it back in. Yeah, and, and if I'm not mistaken, I think the Genovese crime family was the one on which The Godfather was based. Is that true? That is correct. And so you guys started digging into this, and when did you decide, oh, this is going to make a great podcast? Well, we've been researching it for a couple of years. We tried to develop it as a TV series, and we met um, Claire Rawlinson, our showrunner and producer at Stitcher, at the On Air Podcast Festival last year. We told her the story. She loved it, and we went into development with them as a partner. 
and began developing the series over a year ago and then started production this year and we're about I'd say eight to nine episodes into a 12-episode order. So as Michael said, the story's unfolding as we go, and we're finding out lots of new information from people hearing the show, writing in via email, calling our voicemail, hitting us up on social, on Instagram, at MobQueensPod, if anybody wants to follow us. We'd love to hear from you. When you do your research, do you use DNA? Do you just use the standard, you know, the census records and the standard material you might find online? What sources have you used and what have you discovered as a result of that? Well, we started with a lot with Ancestry.com, and that was so helpful because we were able to find the 1910 census, which is the earliest record we have of Anna. She's five years old and living in New York City, and so we could see who her parents were, where she lived, who her siblings were, and then you just go to 1920 and then 1930, and you can see the sort of evolution of a person's life. Oh, she moved here, she moved there. And then we actually used somebody on a, a website called Fiverr, Genealogy. Hunter is his handle, and he helped us actually track down some of Anna's actual descendants who are still alive. And you've had conversations with them, and how do they feel about this? Um, I think they were a little taken aback. The way that we reached out to them was by sending them this huge research packet and just say, hey, we're kind of obsessed with your grandmother, and would you be willing to talk to us? And they were just so (laughs) surprised that we had done so much work on this woman that obviously is so close to them. So you've been talking to people then who actually knew her to help put this story together, yes? That's correct. Yeah, family members, people that worked with her. And Michael used 23andMe as part of a new health plan, and I'll let Michael tell it, but he had some new news of his own. Really? Kind of spinning off of this whole thing? Well, in the same week that we discovered this living relative of Anna's, my sister and I were both adopted when we were babies, and it was always a kind of a question mark about our ancestry, you know, where we came from. And I was able to find a cousin who was able to fill in my entire life story prior to me being born, (laughs) which is pretty thrilling and sort of part and parcel of this unfolding discovery. Wow. So you start working on the story of a mob wife and it turns into you discovering your own origins. That is true, yeah. And then the connections that are there, you know, coming from the same regions in Italy as Anna and her husband Vito, and this sort of broader story of what it means to know your history and to know where you come from. So you're well into the uh, episodic series at this point. Is this something that's going to be told in one season? So we're on episode six as of next week, and it should be the beginning of November, end of October. We should be in the home stretch. And and so you're going to take it to the to the time when they lay her to rest. Well, and, yes, and, we will. There, but you know, <laughs> interestingly, there was no obituary for Anna Scott. So you know, really? uh, you know that obituaries can be such a treasure trove of information. But in this case, there's no grave marker and there was no obituary. So we had a little bit of a harder. Now wait, wait, needle- why why was that? Is this just the secretness of the Cosa Nostra? You know, it's a good question because some mobsters have these big elaborate funerals and there's lots of people and there's lots of press. And yet, like Jessica says, there's no grave marker. There's nothing that acknowledges that she passed. We were only able to discover this by going to the cemetery and looking at the records there to see the date she died. and The burials, yeah. Did, yeah. And you got her death record, though, I assume. 
No, we've been actually just had a helper go to probate court to try and find more, and we have actually not gotten her death certificate yet. <laughs> we've talked to her granddaughter, who was there in the hospital room and who is a first-person narrator for us about it, but no, we are at a loss with the paperwork. You know, as a volunteer deputy sheriff that digs into a lot of these things to work on cold cases periodically, I mean, I really appreciate what you're doing. And it's so fun to put this together because I think there is such a fascination with the mob. And uh, did Vito, by the way, die a natural death? He did die a natural death. He died of heart failure in prison in Springfield, Missouri ah. in 1969, on Valentine's Day, 1969. Yeah, he had been in prison for about... I think, 12 or 13 years at that point. Wow. You know, a lot of mobsters die on Valentine's Day. Do you ever notice that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Interesting. Interesting. Well, you but, gotta... Scott, I, I wanted to say, if you have any amateur researchers out there, we have two little pieces of research we're trying to solve, and they can hit us up at, at Mob Queens Pod on Instagram. Okay. But we're trying to figure out if Dom Frasca, D-O-M Frasca, F-R-A-S-C-A, the author of King of Crime, is related to Gus Frasca, same last name spelling, who was a Genovese capo who died several decades earlier before Dom wrote the book. And if any of your sleuths out there feel like helping us, we're trying to figure that out. And we're also trying to figure out if we came across a piece of information that told us Donata Ragone Genovese, Vito's first wife, was the, quote, sister or sister-in-law of Anna Patillo Vernatico Genovese, Vito's second wife. And we've been unable to research siblings successfully to see how that might have been true, and indeed, if it is true. Right. Well, we got a lot of genies listening right now. Maybe one somebody <laughs> somebody wants to take it on. You know, it sounds yeah. really fun, and obviously, they'd be able to share that with you on the podcast. So that absolutely, great. we would love to have them on. Yeah. Well, you know, the the name of the show is Mob Queens, and it's about the mob wife of all mob wives, Anna Genovese or Genovese, I think a lot of them called it yeah. uh, back in the day. And you can catch it on Stitcher online. And guys, thanks so much for coming on. This is Michael and Jessica, the hosts of the show. And it sounds like it's quite an adventure involving all the things we in genealogy love, the research, the history, the biography, and in your case, true crime. <laughs> Thank yes. you so much, Scott. And thanks, Janie. One of the crazier stories I've heard in a while came to my attention through a woman in Chicago. Her name is Terry O'Connell. 21 years a genie, and uh, Terry, welcome to Extreme Genes. I'm really excited to share this story with everybody because it's incredible. At what point in your research did you discover that you had a kidnapping in your family? I've probably known most of my genealogical time. It was a story my grandmother and her sisters always talked about. They always wondered what happened to Harry, who was their mother's brother. And Harry was how old when he was kidnapped? He was an infant. This was in the late 1890s. He was born roughly between 1895-1898 in Ohio. So after Harry was born, his mother, Susie, had to go into the hospital. There's many different stories as to why she went in the hospital, but she went into the hospital. And her husband, John, was bringing Harry back and forth to the hospital to nurse daily. In doing so, he couldn't work, so he couldn't provide for his family. So he went next door to Susie's best friend, who had just lost a baby, and asked her if she would care for the baby and if she would wet nurse for the baby, and she agreed. 
Every day, he would wake up in the morning, he would go over and check on the baby and make sure that this woman had everything she needed, and he would go to work and, you know, go about his day. And every day, everything was fine. On the day Susie was due to come home from the hospital, he got up, he went to go check on the baby, and the house was empty. Oh, my gosh. So this has been a mystery for now 120 years or so, and along comes our good friend, DNA. Right. So this past March, I have a cousin, Tim, who lives in Tennessee, and he descends from this family as well. And he found something rather odd in his DNA. Okay. He found this match. And this match had all these Norwegian names except for one. And it happened to be Hilton, which was Harry's last name. Oh, wow. Okay. So the yeah. match had other people who had Hilton on their tree, and that's how he was able to figure out that this might be the connection you were looking for all these years. Well, when he found it, he was very adamant. I really don't think it has to do with the missing baby because he sent me an email. And he's like, go in your DNA matches, look for this gentleman, John, and take a look at his tree and come back and tell me what you think. And I emailed him back, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, the missing baby. And he's like, no, I don't think it's him. And I was so excited, but it was March, and March is my big time because I focus on Irish research. So I really didn't have time to play with DNA. And we went back and forth through emails, and Tim was a trooper all month, kept going in looking for records, trying to find things, and every once in a while he would email me a little update. Well, just after St. Patrick's Day passed, I got another email from him, and it said, hey, I'm back to thinking we're on to the missing baby here. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's cool. Keep me updated. I'm still really busy. He right. was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> so about a week or so passed. I happened to have gotten sick from being overworked through March. I was sitting on the couch, and I was like, let me go take a look at all this DNA stuff and see what I can find. Because, obviously, I'm intrigued. We have this 120-year-old kidnap case. Everybody wants to know what happened for Harry, and it's unfolding in front of us. Sure. So I pulled up my tree, and I went and I looked at this gentleman, John, who is now our genetic cousin, and we're just trying to fit him in. Like, really, where does What is the relationship for John? Have you figured that out, or what is it predicted by Ancestry? Um, I want to say... John might be like a second cousin okay. with the removal. Th- that would be about right, I mean, for that time period, yeah. especially if you're sharing yeah. great-grandparents. Right. So I looked at John's tree, and I thought, okay, so I know that we're matching on this line. Obviously, it's going to be the Hilton DNA because that's the only other name in John's tree that's going to connect to my tree. Sure. It's going to connect to Tim's tree as well. Now, here's the interesting part. So John and I share the Hilton DNA and we're sharing this Garlinger DNA. But Tim, the cousin who found all this, only shares the Hilton DNA, though he also descends from that Garlinger line as well. Well, you're not sharing it. That's all it means is you didn't inherit the same DNA. Right, exactly. So without the two of us, we wouldn't have been able to put it together. Yeah. So now have you been in touch with John, and have you figured out who Harry was, what the new name was? (laughs) So... We have emailed with John back and forth, Tim and myself. So this is what we know of Harry's life. Harry moved to Iowa. The woman that he puts down as his next of kin, we are assuming is the woman that took him. And the name isn't the same, but it was close. Sure. He never changed his name. He went by Harry Hilton. He went by Harry Hilton the whole time? How did he even know his name? (laughs) They must have told him, obviously. So that's what we were like, okay, this makes absolutely no sense. Who kidnaps a child and doesn't change his name? Yeah, that is, 
especially at a baby. Who does kidnap it? So did you find them in the census records? What is that showing? So there's been a couple records that Tim has found. He's been on that search, and he's found some military stuff like draft cards. I don't think he's found them in the census yet. The only thing that we can figure out is that because this woman who took him was best friends with Susie, and according to family stories, the only thing that comforted her about Harry being gone was that she knew that he would be loved. Mm -hmm. Yes. So on the flip side, my thought process is, that she really loved Susie so much, but she also just loved this baby, and after losing her own, couldn't give up another. Of course. That she probably just told him that maybe his parents died, and she promised to take care of them. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Oh, your parents it's died, I've taken care of you, thing. and your real name is, is this. Okay. Yes. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah, that does make sense. That would fit very nicely. But to find yes. him in the family grouping on uh, in the 1900 census, the 1910 census, before he's an adult, I mean, that would be really interesting to see, wouldn't it? It would. And I'll have to go look. I know I have a, a ton of emails from Tim of the things he found when we uh, were going through this last March. Because it would be very interesting. Because we do have addresses from the draft cards and, sure. and that. And we know that he was career military the first marriage didn't last. John's family story tells us that Harry did marry again, and there are other children out there. We just haven't found them yet. You haven't found them yet. Uh, have you seen photographs of him yet? Of Harry? We yeah. have. Wow. What was that like the first we time have. you laid eyes on the picture of the baby that was kidnapped? I can't remember if it was a military picture or not, but my cousin Tim sent it to me. and He sent it with a picture of another one of the Hilton brothers. And they all have this, like, little point in their eyebrow. Okay. So that's, just, that's the distinguishing feature, huh? The little point is. in the eyebrow. <laughs> and Harry totally had it. Okay. All right. And he was a full so brother was, to the others, so that's really interesting. Yeah. But what is really weird, so John and Susie, all of their kids are registered, all their births in Ohio, and I have found them, but Harry's is not. Huh. But you've got the DNA, so you know for a fact that... But we've that, got the that, DNA. Yeah, it, there's no question as to who his parents were. Yeah, I mean, unless the only other way it could go is if John had an affair with one of Susie's siblings. Yes. That would be the only other way he could have both of that DNA. Uh, yes, that would be true, I suppose. Uh, nonetheless, it would, it, would, it would come in a little differently, though. The DNA match would be... Uh, off yes if that were the case so i I don't think that would be it but you know that's really cool 120 year old cold case solved by dna and just by an ordinary person with an extraordinary find well done i'm impressed terry thank you the family feels the same way they're like i can't believe that you guys figured this out (laughs) (laughs) well it's been part of your family lore for literally over a century and and now we have these amazing tools that you could do this stuff with and really anybody can learn how to do it it's an amazing process and so much fun and it's life-changing that's the thing it really truly is terry thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story really appreciate it Oh, thanks for having me. And kind of to wrap it up for our Ask Us Anything segment, I've asked my good friend Maureen Taylor, the photo detective, to return and talk about this a little bit because uh, we do have a question from Jill in St. Pete, Florida. She says, I have a black sheep ancestor who was in prison. How do I find his mugshot from the 1930s? Hello, Maureen. What do you think? Hey, Scott. How are you? Great. Oh, 
my, my, my. So photos of people who have gone on the other side of the law can be literally anywhere. So I have found them for sale at flea markets. I have found them for sale at antique shows. I have found them for sale at high-end photo shows. One was all mug shots of everyone from prisons in California. Really? And so oh, do those yeah. become public somehow? or Because obviously this person's looking for a specific ancestor. Right. So I think what happens is they get discarded. I've bought a couple over the years just to have them as an example. And one of the ones I bought, I bought it at like the Brimfield Antique Show. And the guy had literally milk crate upon milk crate of the New York State Prison. And these were mug shots. Wow. With criminal records attached. So I'm not actually sure how they get discarded, but they do get discarded sometimes. So whether or not she can find the ones from the 1930s relies on whether or not her police department that arrested him has kept those records or not. Right. Sometimes they end up in archives, like the Providence City Archives, for instance, just took all of the records from the Providence Police Department. And those are now in the city archives, which is great. It's hit or miss. So how far back were mugshots created? Do you know? Well, there was that whole 19th century thing, you know, about the shape of your head and, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, phrenology. So photography was used in the same way we use it today all the way back in the 1840s and 50s. So you might end up with a picture of a criminal ancestor from way back then, like the Western criminals. Oh, yes. Those gunslingers. Yeah. Well, that's because nobody knew who they were from town to town. There was so much distance between exactly. them, right? So they had to make exactly. the, the wanted posters. Exactly. And then there was a guy in the 19th century. His name was Thomas Burns, and he was the inspector of police and the chief of detectives in New York City. And he wrote a book called Professional Criminals of America. And he wrote that in 1886. Oh, wow. And he wrote about mugshots and how you could identify a criminal based on the way they were dressed. And, you know, obviously today that would be called profiling. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's interesting, like, in particular, he, I focused on women criminals. And so women were often criminals in the sort of typical ways of being a shoplifter, for instance. Right. And she dressed the part. So she would go into a department store and look like she was a legitimate customer and then shoplift. And so this guy described uh, what to look for if you're a shopkeeper then, if somebody's intending to rob you? Not only that, he included pictures of some of these notorious criminals. Oh, fun. And you can buy the book on Amazon. There is also a book by Mark Michelson on Amazon called Least Wanted, A Century of American Mugshots. If you want to get a feel for what the mugshots look like over time. Right. And what you might be able to find. It would be interesting if somebody could create a source book that says, okay, here's where you might get the mugshots for this period, for this place. I can't imagine anybody do it because I don't think anything could be more niche than that, right? Maybe. It's not really niche. I mean, it's a very popular research topic. The authority for criminal ancestors is Ron Aaron's. Oh, yes. Yes, the black sheep guy. You know, most of us have a, either an ancestor or a relative who wound up on the wrong side of the law. And uh, that's why we're talking crime today. And I've got Maureen Taylor, the photo detective on the line, answering questions for Ask Us Anything. And this one comes from Paul in South Carolina. He says, is there any resource available for researching a criminal from the 19th century, Maureen? 
Oh, boy. There are lots of resources available. So Ancestry.com has some criminal records. And if your ancestor was from the U.K., there are databases on Find My Past that you can use as well. They don't include photographs. Okay. They only include the actual records. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, state websites, too, periodically have the criminal records going back to a certain period. Usually, though, it, it's to a point where all of them are deceased, so they're not humiliating people who were arrested as kids in the 40s, you know? So here's a strategy. You should Google the name of the person, or you should Google where they were arrested criminal records. Because, as I mentioned in the earlier segment, these records are everywhere, and some of them are in private collections. Some of them are in public archives. Right. Some of them are on auction sites because they've been auctioned off. So if you search for criminal records for, say, San Quentin, you might find some very interesting records. Now, while you may be just looking for a photograph of your ancestor, if you find that photograph, it may be attached to a card that contains their entire arrest record. Yeah, that's right. I've seen a lot of those. You know, the other thing is, is digitized newspapers. I mean, they're so obvious. And as you mentioned, Google, too. A lot of people just overlook Google because it's so obvious for every type of genealogical research. But digitized newspapers will often give you the details of what went wrong. I mean, right down to speeding tickets that people may have received, you know? Oh, you can use the newspapers to find evidence of 18th century criminal activity. That's true, huh? Yeah. yeah. And the little notices would include a complete description of the person. Yeah. I've got one that is either my third great grandfather or his son of the same name. I'm not sure which. I suspect it's the son now. But uh, they gave all kinds of uh, descriptions of what he looked like and how he escaped from prison and was not seen again and how he escaped and the, the trouble that his jailers were in for letting him get away. He was a shoplifter. He's a thief in New York City. And then there was another guy in England in 1818 who abandoned his family, which was considered a crime because now that meant the Anglican church there in that area had to take care of the wife and kids. And so they were looking for him so that he could be held accountable for that and they could uh, get the family off of their donor list. There's an amazing amount of descriptive information in those early newspaper accounts from like a scar over the eyebrow to actually a description of how a person walked, what they were wearing, what they yes. looked like, yeah. and then obviously some editorial comment about their character. <laughs> <laughs> I think that a person who is looking for a photograph of their criminal ancestors should never give up hope because there were mugshots, at least beginning in the late 19th century most criminals because it was a database that the police departments could then refer back to and they could annotate the cards with more information on this person. So don't give up hope. Just keep looking. All right. She's Maureen Taylor. She's the photo detective. You can follow her at MaureenTaylor.com. Thanks so much, Maureen. Great talking to you as always. Thank you, Scott. Well, that is a wrap on this week's show. And by the way, if you don't have a criminal in your past, so sorry about that, but most of us do. Talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.